Welcome to the Fat Cave. It is Friday, the 6th of August, 1.30. I didn't think I was going to get there today. I really didn't. We had technical glitches a go-go. I do hate that. It's very difficult to get Wirecast to talk to the Mac, to talk to the Roland interface, and, you know, it's dogs and cats living together. But we're not here to talk about that, thankfully. I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au, and I get new cars cheap for buyers here in Australia. Even though... You can't friggin' buy a new car at the moment or, you know, if you do, you have to wait six months. I hate that. Anyway, the industry is groaning under the weight of this and yet new cars keep getting released. Among them, the one we're talking about today is the new Hyundai Staria, the van. They don't want me to call it a van, you know, they don't specifically don't want me to call it the IMAX replacement. So anyway, let us talk about the IMAX replacement because that is exactly the vehicle that this thing is replacing after seemingly geologic time. So there's that. A couple of cool things for you. If you go to the description in this live stream, you will see a download link. And there are two documents you can download there. You can have a look at them on the screen while we talk, if you like. One is the official press release. And do not worry, Hyundai dudes, I have redacted your contact information from that document. And the other one is even worse you know, to all you detractors who say that I'm just in the pocket of South Korean car makers, let me prove to you that I'm not because I got leaked the uh, official dealer uh, bulletin, they call it, the dealer bulletin, which tells them you know, dealers all about upcoming products, including things that they don't want the public to know. And it's got confidential written all over it. Anyway, I've put it there as well. You can download that and have a link. It uh, have a link and have a look as well. It's kind of interesting because there's uh, there's not really very much different information in that document, and there's nothing you can't figure out for yourself. But there is spec and pricing comparisons with, in particular, the Kia Carnival. Now. One of the things about this vehicle, so look, anyway, go to the description, download those documents and have a look at them because there's a bunch of information in there that is going to be difficult for you to figure out by first principles, like independent research, all right? So that's the reason I've put it there. It's not just to be a bastard, even though I do get off on being a bastard, as you know. So have a look at that, but we're going to go through it step by step. Well, I, th I think the first thing we should do is probably have a little look at the vehicle itself. So let's just check that out. It's a pretty distinct departure from anything that's come before. And I can't work out, frankly, if it's hideous or cool. And I'd be interested to see what you think in the chat. So let me know and they can look along as well if they're watching at Hyundai Central. And you can do market research for them. So hideous or cool, let me know. The, uh, the aesthetics are sort of one thing and it's completely subjective, I know. But I wonder where the inspiration came from. I've been thinking about that for a few hours now. And I just do wonder if it was the product of some soju-fueled Netflix sci-fi bender, you know, it, Design Central, and the next day, you know, Astaria is born. And if I had to really think about how that happened, you know, it does, it it really does smack of Robocop to me. This car—that's what just hit me in the face when I first looked at it. And you know, you remember remember Robocop if you're as old as me. And he was that dude, very Staria esque retrospectively now that I look at it and check that chick out to the right there just behind Robocop's left shoulder that's such a Hollywood thing she manages to look 
terrified and titillated at the same time. I don't know how they do that. It's, it's a highly skilled thing among, you know, walk-up actors, isn't it? So let's talk about the Staria. It's going to be cheaper than the Carnival. It's going to be cheaper at entry level, okay? So that's going to be important to fleet buyers. And it's going to be cheaper than Carnival at the top level. And just to put Carnival in perspective, if you can't picture it, that's kind of what Carnival looks like. And I actually think Carnival's got the edge on cool here. We'll just cycle between them briefly so that you can decide for yourself. And obviously the angle's not the same and the perspective's not the same because it's a pretty long shot for the Staria and quite a wide shot for the Carnival. But there we go again with the Staria and it is fair dinkum Captain Kirk, isn't it? You know, it's a bit sci-fi, and that's often just a little bit confronting, I think. But, you know, we'll go back to Carnival and just check it out again. Carnival's got the edge on cool, you know, in as much as a people mover, or that Kia calls it a GUV, a grand utility vehicle, which is kind of a liberty with the truth, if you ask me. But anyway, they're distinctly different aesthetically, I think you'd... <laughs> You'd agree. So uh, just to put the box set in position here, I think they both murder the Honda Odyssey. And Staria has to be the nail in the coffin for Odyssey, doesn't it? I mean, Honda's on its last legs anyway. You know, they're, they're really quite sick in Australia. And Odyssey is just as old as the hills. The fundamentals are as old as the hills. And I think these latest two South Korean vehicles have just eclipsed it totally anyway. That's the impression I get. And I cannot tell what's going on in chat world there because I'm really not getting a whole a whole lot of chat stream there. Anyway, we'll just keep going with this. Uh, we'll just keep going with the broadcast, shall we? And hopefully the chat will resolve itself. But uh, it'd be nice, wouldn't it, if uh, I wasn't talking to myself. In fact, I would hate that. Now, YouTube's telling me I'm not talking to myself, which is gratifying. I could do that on my own, after all. Now, uh, the other couple of salient things before we get right into it, right? Apart from being cheaper, you'll be able to tow more as well because two and a half tonnes worth of tow capacity for Staria versus 2,000 kilograms for Carnival. That's a big difference. I'm not sure if I'd want to tow two and a half tonnes with a vehicle like Staria. Staria is built off the back of the Santa Fe platform, incidentally. If you wonder what they started with to make Staria, they started with Santa Fe. The fundamental engineering is Santa Fe and then... They just built a people mover on top of it. And interestingly, you know, the IMAX people mover, which they don't want me to reference at all, you know, as as the uh, predecessor. The IMAX was kind of a spin-off from the iLoad van. And this is the only time they'll ever really admit that. And, you know, don't talk about it like that. Anyway, the van came first and IMAX came second kind of thing. And philosophically, this is the inverse of that, okay? So the people mover comes first in the design imperative stage here, and the van comes second. And that's how they're going to roll out, as I understand it, too. So the uh, Staria is longer. It's also taller. So if you want that big, airy space thing inside, then Staria. And if you want a little bit more leg room for the seven people that you're going to tug all over the place, then Staria, right? So that's a distinct advantage. If you need the biggest possible thing, however, you know, if it's already a, a bit of a squeeze getting that carnival into your garage, then Staria is not going to fit. It, there's about that much in it, okay? Uh, center SRS airbag. So 
that's kind of an interesting development as well because it stops the driver and the front passenger headbutting each other due to inertial forces in a serious life-threatening crash. So it's really safe, this Staria. Obviously, they haven't done an ANCAP determination on it yet. They haven't launched it yet. But it's got the works burger of safety stuff. And it's very safe even in the cheap seats. You know, you buy the entry-level one, you get a shit ton of safety gear. So that's kind of cool. You get all-wheel drive as well with the diesel only. Okay, so because Santa Fe comes with all-wheel drive and diesel or front drive and V6 petrol, that's kind of how Staria rolls. And this is a significant difference to Carnival, which is front drive only, diesel, petrol, front drive only. Okay, eight-speed automatic transmission. And uh, that's kind of interesting to families who are equivocating about an SUV and perhaps using the all-wheel drive aspect of SUVs to justify not being emasculated by a people mover. Diesel Starias are all-wheel drive, according to the dealer bulletin. So that's kind of uplifting. Not sure the van's going to be all-wheel drive, though. I'm just kind of guessing on that, but I think the van is going to roll in uh, two-wheel drive mode only, which is kind of a shame for the Dingo Piss Creek visitation crowd, don't you think? I don't know why. I don't know why they're not going to roll out all-wheel drive because for adventuring, it would seem that an all-wheel drive van for the Grey Nomad set could be built up as a camper or something like that, couldn't it? You could almost live out of it in these uh, uncertain lockdown times if that's how you want to roll, literally. But I don't think there's going to be an all-wheel drive van version of this vehicle rolling out down the track, so there's that. You might just have to buy the one with seats and do a shitload of unbolting. Not sure. Full-size spare wheel and tyre, too. That's a salient point of difference between Staria and Carnival. So there's that. Okay. On the Carnival front, if I wanted to promote Carnival here and say, well, it does have redeeming features, and it certainly does, apart from looking somewhat cooler or at least less confrontational from a styling point of view, you know, the Staria is not as configurable. And I'll, I'll show you what I mean about that, right? There's all these pictures online. If you're looking at Staria and maybe holding off, doubtless you've seen pictures like this, whole bunch of friends, you know, playing toss the drone in the club seating aspect of uh, Staria. Or you might have dad with these aspirations of pretending that, you know, Staria is going to allow him to live in business class while... The missus drives him home, perhaps, after having a few drinks. And if you've got enough kids, frankly, to, to warrant owning a Staria, this is never going to be you, dude. You're always going to have to just wake up on the lounge after about three minutes of respite. You know, you've just dozed off. And you'll be thinking that. That'll be your dream. But in reality, the lawn still needs mowing, dude. And the kids are going to scream. And that's what woke you up. So there's not going to be, however, this kind of seating functionality with Staria, at least not as far as I can tell from any images I've seen in the dealer bulletin or the press release or anything of that nature. So this kind of seating functionality is apparently available with Staria overseas, but I don't think it's going to roll out here in Australia. So with Carnival, you can actually whip out the middle seat in row two and walk through to row three, but all of the dialogue I've seen in the official material from Hyundai Australia is that 
you're going to have to do the 60-40 split fold thing. This is an Australian image that you're looking at now. And you're going to have to do the split fold thing to get into row three. And you can't pull out the middle seat, apparently, at least not in the configuration that's been revealed so far. So this would be a point of difference as well. And uh, let's just have a look up the pointy end momentarily. Here's, uh, here's a pretty cool shot of that tablet that's going to be in the center. So... That's kind of nice. You can have Nanny State Cam just there checking out which kids are really responsible for the brawl that is uh, happening and has been happening for the last three hours. Once we leave lockdown and we can travel again, you'll be able to reconnect with all of those delights of family travel, such as all the teenagers belting each other incessantly and he's touching me and all of that sort of stuff. So you will be able to play Big Brother and actually be judge, jury and executioner of uh, the guilty party if that's how you roll on the family front. Uh, that's kind of cool. The uh, I don't know if I've got... Oh, yes, I do. Here's a shot of the pointy end, if you're the driver of this vehicle. Interestingly enough, the instrument cluster has no binnacle over the top. So cars are trending a little bit this way and the South Koreans are leading the charge with that. I'd have to spend a lot more time in a vehicle like this to know whether or not that's a good idea because... My default position on that is it does seem to expose the uh, instrument cluster to the substantial risk of, you know, just having a look at um, a lot of reflection of the ambient environment around it. But presumably this has worked out in some way. So it'd be, uh, it'd be interesting to see whether that is a step forward or a step backwards. There's also in the Staria a push-button automatic transmission. I don't know that you can see it there past the steering wheel, but drive, reverse, neutral and park are selected by push-buttons, whereas you've got a much more tactile setup in the Carnival. So... Uh, the other thing about this centre screen here that you can see over on the left there of that shot and more directly when you have a look at the close-up here with Nanny State Cam, you can see that uh, this screen, or you might not be able to see that it's a 10.25-inch screen, but it's 10 and a quarter inches, okay, versus Carnival on 12.3. So the display on that centre tablet aspect of Carnival is slightly bigger. And uh, so it's not all uh, Staria's way, although I'm sure the press release from Hyundai couches it in those terms. It's uh, it's kind of not. And I would hate to say that Staria is flat out better than Carnival or Carnival's flat out better than Staria. What's really going to matter here is how this plays for you, like what's important to you. So my strong advice to you would be check them both out when they're finally available and when you can leave your house to go and look at a new car. Have a look at them both in the flesh because they are substantially different. There are points of difference between these two vehicles, right? And then you've just got to decide what matters more to you. Thankfully, Unlike a lot of other decisions, you don't have to worry about things like whether they're going to look after you or not in after sales because they're both pretty good at actually doing that. So there's that. And uh, if you have got that uh, that thing downloaded now, that dealer bulletin that's highly confidential that they really don't want you to have a look at, I think we could probably just go through that now and have a bit of a have a bit of a squeeze in, at the granular detail. And you know, if you've ever if you've ever thought that perhaps I am in their pocket or not, they are so going to hate me doing this, making that available and going through it now. I just think it's a service to you. 
because it's better than reading a lot of this other media commentary, which is frankly just a little bit bent over. You know, they don't want to criticise anything, the rest of the media, seemingly. And I do hate that. And uh, anyway, let's just have a look. It's, uh, it's a little bit people mover in profile, I'd have to say. And it does look from some angles a little bit tall and a little bit sort of narrow, although I'm sure it's not that. I think that's just that shot. And I'm pretty sure that those huge vertical lights, which are a little bit Pajero Sport to me, and that's not a compliment, I'm not sure they add to uh, any sort of visual perspective that make it perhaps look a little bit lower and a little bit wider. I'm sure that this vehicle is going to have decent dynamics and I'm sure that shot there does not do any uh, particular favours to the rear aspect of that vehicle. But you want to have a look all around it. I've only got access to a limited number of shots. There's the profile again. Let's have a look at it on the road. It does, actually doesn't look too bad on the road. It's a little bit Toyota. I'd have to say, from that angle. So there's that. That's not a, a necessarily a criticism. Now, the dealer bulletin, I'm looking at page one and page two of that dealer bulletin here. Uh, what you're looking at basically down the bottom of that page is the pricing, okay? Now, 66500 bucks recommended retail price before on-road costs for the Highlander diesel with all-wheel drive. Now, I don't flat out don't know how they can do that versus Carnival, with two-wheel drive at $70,490. And I think Kia is going to hate that. They're really going to hate that sharp pricing for Staria because, frankly, there's a lot more kit inside the Staria, you know, a lot more hardcore mechanical kit because they've got to get the drive to the other end. So it needs a transfer case and it needs another prop shaft and it needs another couple of drive shafts and then it needs an all-wheel drive management system. And I understand this is variable all-wheel drive, so it's kind of torque sensing and it also has a four-wheel drive or all-wheel drive lock function for low traction surfaces where you can push the button and get all-wheel drive 50-50. Okay, so if you do adventure with your family, if that's a verb, and you camp overnight and it pisses down with rain and it's really slippery on the way out, then the all-wheel drive lock functionality is going to help. So that's like 4000 bucks cheaper with 3000 to $4,000 worth of extra hardcore mechanical kit in the driveline right there. And when you look down, it's about the same sort of $5,000 uh differential with the three and a half litre v6 as well in highlander and then when you look at the base model chitois the staria staria and i wish they'd stop doing this with their with their uh naming convention at hyundai you can't just call the base model the staria staria you can't do that because elite and highlander therefore don't make any sense they've got no analog down at the bottom of the range how do you describe it it's just clunky dudes come on so anyway the Carnival is about 1300 bucks more expensive for the diesel and it's about $2,400 more expensive for the petrol down in base model Chitoisville. So that's going to be a really easy sell to the fleets, I would have thought. Moving along just, uh, just quietly here, let's look at page two, which is on the right-hand side there. So you can see that uh, it's a substantial difference when you look at the top of that page there is a substantial difference between 
the outgoing IMAX and the incoming Staria. They're just chalk and cheese, and you'd expect that because IMAX is as old as the hills. It's almost as old as Odyssey, seemingly. So it's been around for donkey's years. Uh, In terms of the platform, they say Staria is an all-new leap forward for a Hyundai people mover, where IMAX was built on the same rear-wheel drive van architecture as iLoad. Staria has been built from the ground up on the same front-wheel drive, all-wheel drive N3 passenger car platform as the Santa Fe. It's lighter, more rigid than IMAX, and it combined uh, with uh, new suspension geometry provides car-like refinement of the handling characteristics and the ride quality. So all of that is definitely something to look forward to. You can see the powertrain details down the bottom there. You've got a ton of safety spec and also some pretty good... uh, technology built in. I hate it when car makers use the term technology. They really just mean toys. The fundamental technology is things like the platform architecture and all of that stuff. But, you know, I suppose to consumers, they uh, they think technology equals toys. There's plenty, plenty of toys, but there's also plenty of fundamentally impressive tech. Now, when we look at uh, pages three and four of this highly confidential document here that they'd hate me to leak, Good thing I, I'm not doing it at all, isn't it? Uh, the That graph up the top is kind of interesting because it looks at the pricing opportunities there and you can see where uh, Staria has a bit of a, an opportunity, particularly with the base model and the Highlander versus Carnival in particular, right? So I'm sure they're going to leverage that as hard as they can. Sales volumes are pretty low in this segment, but, you know, if you can't make money selling a $70,000 Hyundai people mover to people, then uh, you're really not trying, I'd suggest. And there's a really interesting comparison here that will help you if you are actually in the market. Okay, if you are in the market for a large vehicle like this, you're thinking about maybe going for a people mover instead of a Palisade or a Santa Fe or a Sorento, and you're looking at Carnival versus Staria, definitely have a look at those two tables down the bottom because it lays out the specification differential between Carnival and Staria in terms of the unique selling propositions by model grade. And obviously, there are four model grades for uh, Carnival and only three for uh, Staria. So there's a little bit of overlap there. There's a bit of poetic license in what's in what's a direct competitor and what's not. I'd suggest with these things, look at the price, dude. What do you get for X amount of money? Most buyers uh, really describe themselves to the market in the context of how much money they've actually got to spend, all right? So if you think about how much you've got to spend, then just say to yourself, well, what sort of carnival can I get for that sort of money? And what sort of Staria can I get for that sort of money? And have a look at the unique selling proposition type features, the big ticket items that you get on one that you don't get on the other, like all-wheel drive, full-size spare tyre, things of this nature. And I wouldn't be surprised if Kia has a little crack at repositioning the pricing on Carnival if Staria launches and starts to erode some of Carnival's position of dominance in this segment. So that'll be interesting to watch as well. So perhaps if you're thinking about buying a Carnival, you might want to wait anyway because the price might come down and I don't know what the pricing available, what the availability of Carnival is like at the moment. The whole industry seems to be reeling under the weight of this you know, microprocessor chip shortage. So it may be very little different between just waiting six months and ordering now. And if you wait six months and, you know, something nice might happen with the price. We'll just have to wait and see on that one. Moving on to uh, 
page four of this highly confidential document that uh, will probably get my nuts cut off for leaking, but hey, like I care, you'll see details there of the two different powertrains v6 petrol front wheel drive which is substantially cheaper but also not as good so it's a matter of what you want to pay for essentially let's just have a look at the pricing difference there it's about three thousand dollars difference between the v6 petrol front drive and the diesel all-wheel drive and i'd suggest therefore that that's really good value for the diesel like you're getting a whole all-wheel drive system and an engine with a ton more uh, power in the mid to low rev range, which is where you drive these things. If you're thinking about lap record with a Staria or a Carnival, then you are barking up emphatically the wrong tree. You know, it's not that kind of vehicle. So just if I, if it was me, I'd be going, you know what, I just want to lope along and I want to keep up with the traffic and I don't want to change back through four gears going up the hill, even though an automatic's going to do it for me. I'd rather drive the diesel in that case because diesels are more suited to that kind of driving. Anywho, there's the details on the uh, petrol versus the diesel. 200 kilowatts peak power versus 103 but substantial difference in revs, right? So you've got to rev the petrol's tits off to get to those 200 kilowatts for maximum overtaking potential. And when you do, it's going to accelerate better. But look at it the other way. Only 330 newton metres at 5,200 RPM, okay? You, but you get 430 newton metres all the way from 1750 to 2750 with the diesel. So in terms of mid-range power, the diesel is just all over the V6 petrol. And if you haven't had a crack at a diesel engine ever, I'd suggest go and drive one because you'll be surprised at A, how quiet and refined they are because they're pretty good at isolating the diesel engine from the uh, cabin environment, okay? And the other thing is you'll be so surprised at how effortless they seem for ordinary driving, all right? And yes, there is a performance differential when you're doing flat-out overtaking, but I don't know how often you're going to do that. Most people don't spend very long with their foot flat to the boards in cars such as these. Down the bottom of the page, you can see there is a four-wheel drive lock button in the Staria, and also uh, you can select the different drive modes as well. So that's kind of cool, all right? Now, moving on through the highly <laughs> confidential document, Let's have a look at the, the salient features outside. You know, the panoramic windows interest me. I want to get in one and see exactly how useful they are. There's blind spot camera as well for the rear vision mirrors, although I'd have to suggest that, you know, in the real world, blind spots don't actually exist. And look, the hot tip there with the blind spot thing, if you're driving along, and in particular on the driver's side, you know, if you're seeing the side of your car in that wing mirror, then that mirror is adjusted way too far in here. And all you need to do to eliminate blind spots is just get the adjustment and go out there like that. It just has to be out there, right? And if you just miss out on seeing the side of your car, then you can see a whole lot more of the traffic environment out there. You can even see things that are just there next to your ear, okay? And that's how I'd be doing it, right? And just use the blind spot camera thing as a backup because a lot of these systems are imperfect at best or annoying. They give you a ton of false positives and doing it by first principles is safer anyway, particularly if you get in a strange car one day. Anyway, 
Got a bunch of other things. Now, this strip across the nose, okay, let's talk about that. This strip across the nose is not the headlights, okay? It's just an LED and daytime running light sort of positioning lamp. The actual headlights are down there more level with the rego plate, all right? And uh, you can see them there. They've got LED low and high beams there. You've got a body-coloured grille to match that. And then moving on to the to the rear, I find the rear a bit confronting as discussed. Those tall lights, I'm not sure they help. They do tend to elongate vertically the perspective of that car, but you get plenty of LEDs and that's kind of nice. You've got standard 18-inch grey alloy wheels and a full-size spare wheel and tyre versus Carnival on a Space Saver, so there's that. Now, uh, moving to the right-hand page there, you can see a whole bunch of things on the interior. We'll just go through that. There's that 10 and a quarter inch LCD cluster in front of the driver and a 10 and a quarter inch sort of multimedia display over there on the right. The shift by wire transmission, they're calling it. It's a push button automatic, essentially. And I think Carnival's got the edge there. But you get heated and ventilated uh, leather-appointed seats, heated and leather-appointed steering wheel, a big wireless car ch phone charging tray, and you get USB multimedia port, charge ports, rear seatbelt monitoring system, uh, heated and power-folding mirrors, centre console and storage box, and uh, power door and tailgate switches. So that's all fairly comprehensive from an equipment point of view. We'll just keep going through the document now because this is quite interesting. There's a bunch of bunch of stuff there that you can see for the interior as well, looking back. And when you look at comfort and convenience features there, I'm not sure I'm doing that in the right order, but anyway, the uh, you're looking at a bunch of comfort and convenience features that have never been seen essentially in a Hyundai uh, people mover before and which you won't get uh, frankly in many other vehicles so it is quite quite well equipped for the price but I would like to see this ability to remove the center seat of row two and give you that actual walkthrough facility to row three and the other thing where I think Carnival might have a bit of an edge there is that you get more uh, child seat anchorage points with Carnival, whereas I think with this vehicle, the child seat anchorage points are relegated more to uh, row two only. I don't think there's the child seat anchorage point options in row three that you do get with Carnival, and that's got to do with the nature of that rear seat arrangement with Carnival where they fold flat into the floor. And the seats do fold flat with Staria, but I'm not sure they fold quite as well. I think uh, Staria might have the edge on dynamics, though, over Carnival. We'll just keep going through the dock, shall we? There's, uh, there's a bunch of other stuff available here. We'll just have a look at the whole shift-by-wire transmission thing there. You can have a close-up look on the LCD cluster, and that might take some getting used to because there's no actual gauges there. They're just projections on an LCD screen. And as discussed, there's no binnacle over the top, and I'd be very interested to see in reality on a nice, bright, Shitsville sunny day how uh, legible those uh, instruments are and the information in between them as well, which is kind of critical to the, uh, to the whole driving thing. The passenger view monitor, dead set useful if you're an over-enthusiastic breeder. And also this uh, quiet mode where the driver can be playing music and the passengers in the second row want to talk or sleep. So you can enable quiet mode and the speakers in the rear are going to be muted with the front row speaker volume set to seven or below. Personally, on these long trips, speaking as a parent, 
once those kids get to sleep, you don't want to do anything to disturb them because the last thing you want to hear is any sort of premature, are we there yet? So uh, front and rear, uh, let's see, where are we now? Let's move forward. There you get front and rear climate control air conditioning, remote rear air conditioning control with lockout function as well, automatic heated and ventilated front seats and heated steering wheel, electrically adjusted driver's seat, a dual power sunroof, second and third row curtains for privacy and to keep the sun off the faces there's back seat pocket usb ports you get third row usp usb ports as well that's kind of interesting and uh three point seat belts and seat belt monitors for all the seats it's going to be easy enough to get into the third row provided you don't have child seat anchor uh, as provided you don't have child restraints actually fitted in the outboard positions of the second row because when you look at that uh, on the left hand side of that screen there where you can see that seat folded it's easy to do that if the seat is unoccupied but it's dead set hard to do that if you've got young kids and you've got child seats fitted into those adult seats right the rest if the restraints are fitted there you can't tip the seat and let's face it it's the easiest way to work up a sweat when you're doing this kind of thing as a parent is just bolt in and unbolt a couple of child seats so that you can get passengers into row three. And that's why I'm such a fan of this ability to remove the row two seating position and walk through into row three, which the Carnival offers and which you can do on Palisade as well if you order the seven-seat Palisade. It's just if you order the seven-seat Palisade, you don't get the... um, you don't get the ability ever to have eight seats. So that's uh, that, that's a kind of interesting early look at uh, this new Kia uh, uh, Hyundai Staria competitor to the Kia Carnival. And you can see there, this is a shot of Staria from an overseas market. And you can see row the, the, the second row there does have a gap, or the third row. You've got four seating rows in this shot. I don't know why that's not available in Australia, perhaps... We Australians are too big and too fat for that uh, configuration, but you also can just walk through there. And I would personally love to see that. And you can see dude flying business class here sitting next to that walkthrough facility as well. And the drone tossing dudes, they've also got access to walkthrough facility to row three. So personally, I, I, I don't think it's a great idea not to have that for the Australian model. There's probably a good production reason why they don't. But Anyway, they're just my initial observations in relation to that vehicle, and I'd be delighted to hear what your uh, thoughts are on that as well. The only problem with this, of course, is that I'm still not getting any chat indication here on the... um, on, on the whole live stream thing. And I don't know, that's fallen over on me once before. I really don't know why. And what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to log into my, to my own live stream, okay? And I'm going to see if I've got some chat there. Yes, yes. I love it when you can game the tech and you can you know cheat the system at its own game so anyway here's the here's a bit of chat we'll do some talk back sort of chat with you now with me gaming this system individual one says when did toyota release their $150,000 rally ready people mover they've set a precedent now yeah i don't know about that you know 
people movers are the least sexy segment of the whole market, dude. And I, I understand why they're, um, why they're so unsexy, but they're also so practical. And I, I really do get the feeling like so many people buy SUVs because it's a fashion thing, you know, it's, it, they can't see themselves in a people mover and they really need to get over that because for example, you know, just have a look at this really simple example here. I don't know if I've got a great shot of it, but let's just have a look at the side of Staria, okay? It's it's not a beautiful thing from the side, I'd have to say. It's a bit wedge-shaped, but that big, fat sliding door, which you are going to use every time you get all of that bloody tribe in and out of that car, that is so much better, so much more practical than a swing-away conventional SUV type door in row two okay that sliding door rocks and it's just get over the people mover thing because it is so practical to have a big fat door like that if you've got to get four kids in and out of a car like that's the kind of arrangement which you need dude and you just have to leave the whole <laughs> you just have to leave that whole other you know thing about the the people mover, the stigma that's attached to the people mover, Christ knows why, they're, they're pretty nice to drive. You know, every time I drive a carnival, I actively try to detest it, and I can't. So there's that. Now, let's have a look at a couple of other comments here. Alex George says, bring back Ming Mole Fridays. <laughs> Were they ever a thing? I don't ever remember doing Ming Mole Fridays. I've tried not to make the channel just, you know, videos exclusively with Ming Moles because then I'd just engineer myself out, dude. Come on, the Ming Moles are... The Ming Moles are like anything else good, aren't they? You know? You just have to pace them out. Mike Spivy says, as long as you are inside, it doesn't matter what it looks like. That's absolutely true. That's, and, and that's what I say to people about Pajero Sport, because that's a principal objection, right, for people to buy a Pajero Sport. I hate the way it looks from the rear. I go, dude, you can't see it when you're driving. You know, and it actually drives okay. And I think Staria is going to be a little bit like that. People movers are a bit like that anyway. Nobody ever wakes up and goes, you know what? Going to buy a people mover. How they look is a function of what they do. And you can't buy a tiny little people mover because... Until we have TARDIS tech, it's just not going to be possible to do that. Now, Samuel Jesse Jonas says, uh, I'm not going to go there with the Taliban, dude. We're not doing the Taliban in the chat. <laughs> Let's try Abe Francis. Maybe he won't talk about the Taliban. Uh, something says EV is uh, non-negotiable. So unless they expand their drivetrain, it's probably Kia for us in a couple of years. Hopefully this drives down the price. Look, I think production economics are going to drive down the price of EVs to some degree, but they're going to be much more expensive than conventional vehicles for quite some time. And we've also in Australia got a prime minister who doesn't seem to think that climate change is such a big deal. And that's being kind. And also who therefore doesn't seem to want to impose corporate average fuel economy type standards on car makers. And that means that we are in the bottom of the queue when operations like Hyundai in Australia and Kia and anyone else tries to negotiate with the factory and says, oh, look, we want that hybrid or we want that EV or we want whatever. They go, Unless there's a regulatory reason, we're production constrained and the people, the, you know, the, 
the markets who need the environmentally friendly powertrains, they've got to come first. And until we get those sorts of regulations here, don't hold your breath unless there's a change of government, then we're going to be at the end of the queue and we're not going to get some pretty cool hybrids and some pretty cool EVs that otherwise we might if we had a better regulatory framework in this country. That's just how this works. Best family cars. Who doesn't get enough of talking to me, obviously, on the telephone three times a week? Goes, um, goes no, uh, it'll get you the last turn. That's just some internal chat. Guys, can't you guys just get a room? Anyway, Nathan Stone says, why don't they put sliding doors on SUV-type bodies? P.S. Uh, would you ever do strictly engineering study videos for us mechanical engineering students? You don't need my ghetto engineering. I was a spectacularly shit engineer. Like, I became a journalist for a reason, dude. My mission is to make ordinary people appreciate basic applied physics. And when it comes to actual hardcore engineering, like drilling right down into Fourier transforms and the root mean square analysis of the frequency response of this and that, I'm a much better journalist, dude. Like, you know, I can talk about basic things like spring design and the active number of coils and, you know, the, the diameter of the bar and the diameter of the coil and the number of active, stuff like that. I get that. But proper engineering, like hardcore propeller head engineering, it just left me in the dust. And here we are, you know, with a wasted life being a journalist. <laughs> Matt Myers says, hi, John, love the channel. Thanks, dude. Uh, I am in the market for a BMW X3M competition. Okay, waiting for the LCI, but pondering the X5M competition or any other suggestions. I don't need the extra space, but would I love the extra go? Oh, yeah, dude, you would. Like, anything M is highly addictive. It's like Tiffany from The Office, right? You know, it's it's just the moth and the flame for me. It's the moth and the lamp. You know, you and then you're dead. Okay, it's like that. It, I so love cars like that, but I love part of it because they're dangerous. They, you know, they, they're they dangerous. They're not intrinsically dangerous. They're just dangerous because of what they do to you, because they're out here. Their limit is out here. And if you're a normal driver, like not Mark Webber or something, your ability is in here. Okay, and that means even if you're a good driver, you can get a car like an i30N or a Kia Stinger or a BRZ, something of that nature. You can get that and you can walk it up to the limit and have fun doing that. But with a car like anything M, you're tipping it in off the main straight at 220, right? And that's very unforgiving. And out there on a public road, you can never get close enough to the limit for it to be a truly fun thing on a public road. So there's a bit of a dichotomy there. And at least these companies like Hyundai with i30N and upcoming i20N, they let you go to a track. And as long as you're not uh, racing, the warranty covers you. And I quizzed BMW about that as well, right? So anything M, which is what I specifically asked about, was... If you take it to a track, provided you're not racing, then the warranty is not automatically voided. But obviously, 
wear and tear in both cases is not covered. So if you go to a track and do a billion laps and wear out the brakes, then that's on you, you know, because wear and tear is never covered by warranty. So it's not the universal panacea for breaking the thing, but at least these companies don't uh, actively terminate your warranty for voiding the warranty because you are quote-unquote informally racing or whatever. So you will love, you will absolutely love anything M. And the only the only caveat on that is just for ordinary driving, they do tend to be pretty hardcore. I drove an X4, uh, sorry, I drove an M4, the two-wheel drive M4. This was before the um, X-Drive version was released. And it had a bunch of, accessories and I drove it back to back I had a week in an X uh, in an M3 competition and then I drove M4 competition and the M4 competition had a bunch of extras like the carbon fiber seats that were like Cirque du Soleil to get into and that got frankly pretty old it's hard to live with that okay but I could live with the M3 competition just it's still quite hard to drive it's like a bit like that like a proper performance car but if that's not what you want, okay, if, you, if you're not prepared to live with that, it's often better to come back from, say, M3 competition to something like um, an M430i X-Drive because that would just be softer at the edges and still a ball terror. You know what I mean? So you want to think carefully about owning anything M and if M is right for you, then you'll love it. It'll be me and Tiffany off into the sunset, right? But if that's not you and you actually do have to get stuck in traffic often when we have traffic again and when you're allowed to leave the friggin' house again, then the next one down in the range, the most premium non-absolute M car might be the one for you. That's how I would play that. Uh, TGV now. Moving along, my vehicle's fuel economy uh, during the Sydney lockdown is showing about 17.5 litres per hundred all this uh, less than 5Ks to the supermarket and back, uh, just doing bad things to everybody. Is this just doing bad things to everyone's cars? Yeah, yeah, dude, it is. Lockdown absolutely flat out sucks a golf ball through 100 metres of Nilex garden hose in terms of what it does to your engine. Because if you're going to the shops twice a week and you're driving 5Ks there and 5Ks back, that is hell on earth for your engine oil. And I would say as a PSA to car owners everywhere, if you've got one of those fairly new cars with a 12-month, 15,000-kilometre service interval, there's no way that you are going to get to 15,000 Ks after 12 months, right? If you're doing 5 Ks there and 5 Ks back twice a week and we have lockdown infinitely, then that's going to be 1,000 Ks a year, right? And even if it's 10,000 Ks a year or 5,000 Ks a year, Get your oil changed every six months. Make a booking with the dealership at six months. Excuse me, at six months in, and just go, dude, I want the oil and the filter changed. And they'll go, oh, okay, because you know they're going to make money out of it, and you're going to have a much healthier engine oil in your engine for the next six months. And the other thing that happens, right? The specific risk here, apart from polluting your oil, is that you'll dilute it because your engine's going to operate. Uh, a bit rich 
because that's how cold engines work and the parts are going to be a little bit imperfectly matched because they're going to be cold for a lot of that running proportionally and fuel is going to blow by the cylinder into the crankcase and the fuel is going to dilute the oil. That doesn't lubricate your engine particularly well and it also leads to a lot more fuming through a thing called the PCV which is the uh, positive crankcase ventilation system which takes crankcase vapours and burns them through the inlet tract. So you get this much more thin, oily, gassy residue, vapour is a better way of thinking about it, uh, sucked into your inlet tract, and that's going to gum up the works, right? So one of the uh, countermeasures against having that happen is just change the oil more often. Every six months, much better idea. Let's keep going with this chat. Uh, Eleanor says, John, John Peoplemover persuasive arguments beginning to sound good haven't gone looking for cars but uh, on facebook lately different ads for different cars but curious your opinion sometime about uh, bmw x1 okay these tiny suvs okay i get the x1 thing x1 is kind of like bmw's hyundai kona or you know bmw's kia seltos or something right I kind of get it because SUVs are a fashion thing. But for me, it is actually harder to justify Subaru XV, Hyundai Kona, Kia Seltos and uh, X1 vehicles of this nature compared with their hatchback equivalents. Because when you line them up, what are you actually getting extra? Like, what are you actually getting extra when you buy? That, that is a tangible benefit to you, like in, in, in Objectiveville, okay? Because there's the fashion thing, and the fashion thing is chocolate versus strawberry, blondes versus brunettes, whatever. It's completely uh, epistemically subjective how you feel about that, right? But when it comes to are you getting more space, are you, are you more usable space? Are you getting a better powertrain? Are you getting whatever? Then quite often you are not, and you're paying five to $10,000 more for it compared with the hatchback that you might otherwise buy in the range. So I get why people buy Tucson's and CX-5s. That next step up makes a little bit more sense to me because they are sort of bigger and, uh, and a little bit more area. But even when you look at Tucson versus... Uh, i30 or you look at sportage versus serato or you know any of those other that you know you can look at um i'll think of another one but when you look at those vehicles and you just check the dimensions the wheelbase and the the, the overall length and the width and not so much the height because height is a pretty useless dimension in a car really what are you actually getting extra? And these things are heavier, so they often don't go as well either, and they're a bit higher, so they don't often handle quite as well in extremis, right? So I'd, I'd go down that track a little bit, Eleonora. I really would, because I get wanting an SUV, and I get that the Joneses have got an SUV, and Trev bought, you know, Shazza, an SUV, and all of that sort of stuff, but do you really need one, and is it going to be better for you? If you've got the driveway from hell with, an, with a, a ramp over compromise like that or an approach angle compromise like that, then yeah, SUVs make sense, and that little bit of extra ground clearance is a big win. So it really depends on you and what you want. Uh, let's talk to uh, Aridan Life. It says, opinion on the LGV G10 still not using water-cooled turbos. I test drove one and it was brand new and it had an engine light 
and brake light failures. Really? Was this at a dealership? Because they shouldn't be letting you test drive vehicles like that. Anyway, my thing about LGV, uh, LDV G10, okay, last time I looked, that vehicle did not crash particularly well. So go to ancap.com.au and download the crash test technical report and have a little bit of a read of that, okay? Whereas Carnival and Staria, for example, really safe, dude. And obviously that costs you extra. And you can't say, you can't even say, well, that's my decision. I'm prepared to take that risk. Because if you are badly injured in a car crash, okay, here's the social aspect of that. There's a knock-on effect to tons of people around you, not just your family and your friends, your colleagues, people like that. There's a knock-on effect to the rest of society because the rest of society does not actually just spit you out and throw you under the bus. We pick up the tab for you. If you suffer a profound traumatic brain injury in a car crash, right, society looks after you to the extent that that's possible for the rest of your life at considerable cost. And you are basically useless in that position quite often. Okay, And that happens a lot. And one hedge against things of this nature at the risk of being grim in an already grim time is that you don't really get to do that or you shouldn't really get to do that. Okay, so... LDV G10, last time I looked, was not particularly safe, and there's that. And the other thing about all of these emerging Chinese brands, I think there is an opportunity for them in the Australian market, and I think in particular companies like Nissan, Sonda, uh, Sonda Honda, and uh, also to some extent Mitsubishi, because they've got like no money, okay? They're on the, they're really on the ebb at the moment, they're, they're, or at least they're on the slide. So this is an opportunity for the upcoming Chinese brands like LDV, all right? But what we do not know enough about with respect to LDV is long-term reliability, resale value, caliber of customer support. That's a huge one, okay? And these things are cheap, okay? They are much cheaper than the competition, and I'd suggest that has to be for a reason, okay? So your decision to buy one or not is purely a personal choice, but I would not be looking at this kind of consideration from the point of view of it being in any way equivalent to a Staria or a Carnival, okay? It's just not. So let us move on and talk to uh, hopefully someone with a real name because they tend to be a little more sane. That's always nice. Nate says, Hi, John, do you know what's happening with the Mazda hybrid rotary engine vehicle? No, dude, I don't. Um, is it one uh, of these motor show prototype vehicles we will never actually see? I think it's very difficult for rotary engines to comply with emission standards. So I don't think we're going to see one outside of Fantasyland. I, I, re I really don't. It's a nice idea and obviously there is a groundswell of sentimentality among the uh, Mazda fanboys when it comes to rotaries. And I get that. I've driven uh, several RX-8s when they were new and I loved them. I, they, they were just awesome vehicles, you know, they were like the Batmobile. I remember I was a young-ish, and it's hard to believe that I was ever young, but I was a young-ish motoring journalist and drove some of the last rotaries that were ever on sale, and they were friggin' awesome. I get that, but I think the market's moved on from rotaries since then. Stephen Notnow says, uh, LDV are pieces of junk. I drove one for work. Uh, mate bought a four-door ute, only had it for a few months he hated it, loads of problems. Well, 
I'm sorry to hear that, but you know, I, I really would like to see some large-scale independent surveys of reliability across the Australian marketplace in general, but also of um, the emerging brands in particular, because that would be really interesting. And a, a grain of salt with that one, okay? One person's experience does not extrapolate to the population of um, LDV or other emerging brands. It really doesn't, okay? There are piece of shit experiences, if we can call them that. There are piece of shit experiences with every brand, okay? And that's not so important as how often that happens and how well those brands accommodate you and deal with you and turn your frown upside down or not. Because if you're under the bus, that's one thing. And if you looked after, that's quite another, okay? And I, I just am an advocate for brands that don't throw you under the bus. I don't get any money under the table from any brand. I get the same money out of organising the sale of a, a Hyundai to a customer or a Kia as I do with a Volkswagen or a Mercedes-Benz. And yes, we do organise the occasional Volkswagen or Mercedes-Benz for customers counterintuitively. And if they want that, I don't get into it with them. I just go, yeah, sure. Happy to help, dude. The money's the same. It spends the same. I fundamentally don't care. If you want that, I'll help you get that. But, you know, I am an advocate for brands that don't throw you under the bus. That is kind of really important to me, you know. And it does suck in an advanced Western democracy and in the 21st century world generally, I think, that this is a principal point of differentiation between brands in a highly competitive market selling big ticket items like cars. And the worst operators in the market, they should have a good friggin' hard look at themselves, in my view, because it's one thing to do a sexy product that drives well, and it's absolutely another thing to look after people. And looking after people is really important. You know, and it, it often doesn't translate into the corporate culture because the corporate culture, or at least uh, 20th century corporate culture, which has carried over for nearly a quarter of a century into this century, it's all about the profit, dude, right? And if we can turn the profit up by turning the customer support down, then in some corporate cultures, that's fair enough. And I tend to advocate really hard when my advice is sought. I advocate for the brands where you don't get thrown under the bus, right? Uh, excuse me one sec. I hate it when the real world <laughs> intervenes. Anyway, we'll keep going for a few minutes. I want to go for an hour, and I'm sorry I was late at the start. If you didn't join me from the start of this live stream, go to the description. You can download a couple of really detailed documents about the new Hyundai Staria, because I'd like you to enter into this in an informed way. It's not necessarily better than a Carnival, but it does have an edge in some areas, and so does Carnival in some areas as well. And the determinant is likely to be what's going to be important to you. And uh, that confidential dealer bulletin does lay out some of that detail that you will need to make an informed decision and that's why I'm leaking it okay it was leaked to me by a car dealer it had confidential written all over it confidentiality doesn't actually work like that in the legal sense so sorry about that I think it's got absolute value to you if you're in the market now and that's why I've got it available to you with a download link in the description so make sure if you are a, a keen 
prospective customer here, make sure you download that and have a comprehensive look at it. It'll be very helpful. Certainly much more helpful than carmaker websites are because they just give you a thousand reasons why you should buy whatever. Now, what you've got to do is cut through that BS. The pro tip here, incidentally, if you are looking at a car maker website for any car, is you've got to listen really hard for the things that they don't say. This is like what I was taught when uh, I had some really experienced producers and uh, executive producers on tabloid TV, and they would whisper little software upgrades into your ear as a as a sort of inside outsider on TV, and they'd say, listen for what they're not saying, right? And that is such a good piece of advice because lies by omission or bullshit by omission is a thing, and all corporate websites do that. They don't say what they don't want you to hear, okay? It's intrinsic. It's not even underhanded. It's they're promoting their thing. That's their job, and it's your job as an informed consumer, right, to go, hang on a minute. They haven't talked about this. Why not? And that's a lot of what I do when I report on cars. I spend most of my time or most of my actual fingers away from the keyboard time going, Jesus, I better sort this out before we go live or before uh, I put this story up. I better figure out why they're not talking about that, right? And often there's a really good reason. Sometimes it's they just don't want you to know that they've cut costs by not including that. Or sometimes it's, it's a production type reason, like we can't package all-wheel drive with a V6 engine in a right-hand drive market because the steering's in the way and it wasn't engineered for that, you know, or whatever. So there's a lot of that stuff on the corporate websites and if I was you, I'd be drilling down into some of that before I got 70 grand out and went, yeah, I'll take that. Okay, that's that's kind of important. Uh, let's have a look now. Jeff Winslow says, Hi, John, I've got a 2019 Hyundai Ionic full EV. I remember driving that. It was a pretty good thing. Uh, and I only commute about 30 to 40 kilometers a day. Can you advise me on the best way to recharge with respect to battery longevity? I don't think it matters. I just do it every couple of days. Like do three or four days, recharge, do three or four days, recharge. I don't think it matters. I, I'd steer clear of sort of getting close to full depletion and I would minimize the number of uh, really high uh, intensity recharges like remote recharges the fast charging stations I, I might try and minimize that but generally the charging tends to work itself out pretty well if you're recharging at home with a presumably seven point whatever it is two 32 amps at 240 volts it'll be seven point something uh, kilowatt charger 7.2 or 7.7 something of that nature I, I wouldn't I would not necessarily recharge uh, in an anally retentive OCD fashion, like <gasps> I've done 30Ks, recharge. Just do it when it suits you, mate. I, I wouldn't obsess about it because at the end of the day, the car serves you, not the other way around. And Hyundai's going to be pretty good if uh, history repeats. There's plenty of evidence that Hyundai's going to be pretty good if the battery wears out prematurely. Like, they're only replacing every battery in every Kona EV over a specific range, the biggest recall in EV history, if memory serves. So uh, I wouldn't worry about any of that. I just recharge when it's convenient and not obsess about it. TGV says, oh, no, that's just a bit of conversation. Tone. Let's talk to Tone. Tone is a regular commenter on the channel. Uh, Lenovo used to make quality products before they decided to follow Apple down the 
disposable laptop rabbit hole so the Chinese can make good stuff when they turn their mind to it. Absolutely, they can. The Chinese do a great job. Where do you think your Apple <laughs> comes from? I just had a disaster with my uh, one of my 27-inch iMacs. It was just, let's not go there. It's too sad. If you wonder why I didn't put too many videos out in the first three weeks of July, that would be why. Now I've got two of them. Anywho, the Chinese make some fantastic stuff. They are a manufacturing powerhouse, and they can make great stuff, and they can make crap stuff, and obviously you can't make great stuff cheap. It's just that. But most of these established brands, like where do you think they're getting a lot of their electronic components from? They'd all have Made in China written on them in .02 points or something. Helvetica Extra Light, whatever. Uh, I'll keep going for another few minutes there. Back to Eleonora. Uh, says, John, uh, if you, uh, if you, not you, don't know, you, not you, don't you, don't know, seems like a person needs to know what question to ask. Mm, yes, it does. I'm not even sure what that means. Anyway, Brendan Wheatley now says, Great live stream, very informative and entertaining. Cheers, John. Well, that's very nice, Brendan. That's a high caliber of comment. And one thing I do know about live streams is that the caliber of comment during the stream is orders of magnitude above the ambient level of comment on a pre-recorded video that you upload. Isn't that funny? It does tend to be a bit of a cesspool at times. In fact, I, I have actually changed my sort of policy on dead set assholes in the comments. Like if you're just being a dead set asshole, I just block you now. Couldn't care less. I really do want to foster a little bit more of a community thing. And I am happy to be told I'm wrong, incidentally. If I'm wrong, tell me. And with me, it's mainly about the information. It's not like a personal attack if I'm wrong. It's about the facts. And if the facts are wrong, then I'd love to know because, you know, the facts are very important when you've got 50, 60, 70,000 bucks on the table and you want to make the right decision. So uh, I am very chuffed at the, uh, the calibre of uh, comment in the live streams. And there is an improvement in the uh, ambient level of comments too. But there must be a thousand people blocked by now, however, because if it starts with a personal attack, I just go, block. Because I can. Uh, sleepy and Blur. This is dangerous. Could be undoing my hypothesis just mentioned, couldn't it? Sleepy and Blur says, John, I know Havel was on your lemon list. Do you have any recent experience of purchasing for clients on Havel? What is your experience dealing with Havel dealers? If any, well, it's, it's like I just said, dude. The, the sales volumes are low. They haven't been here long enough to have a track record. The dealer network is small. It really is a roll of the dice on these things that matter. Long-term reliability, resale value, caliber of support. They're cheap, okay? In my view, LDV, Havel, Great Wall, brands like this, they are a viable alternative, particularly in the current market. They're a viable alternative to a late model used car because they're at the same sort of price. You might think about buying a Great Wall Ute instead of a used Hilux or a used um, Triton or a used Ranger or something of that nature because the warranty might be appealing to you if there's only 18 months of warranty left on the Ranger, etc. Okay, But that's how I'd view it and resale could undo the, the, the diminishment of uh, resale value, which is going to be steeper 
than uh, with a more quote-unquote reputable brand or established brand, the diminishment in the value of your vehicle over time could undo some of the upfront savings. So there's that to consider as well. And I would definitely go to an independent site that tracks resale value like Redbook, which you can use for free for research. And I'd have a look at a three-year-old Great Wall versus a three-year-old Trident or something. Okay, and just factor that diminishment in value or that uh, more uh, the, the difference in the in the rate of reduction in value. Okay, I'd have a look at that over time and just factor that into the price. Okay, otherwise, it could be a completely false economy to go with the less established brand. TGV says, John, any thoughts on a lot of news review websites changing their names remotoring is now car sales car advice now drive and r media copying car expert i think the name doesn't matter i think car advice car advice changing to drive is like i i get how i i get how you can shoot yourself in the foot in battle right i get that because it's so chaotic but if you're just sitting there in your office in the corner and you put your foot up on the table and you get the bat pumpy and aim it at your toes and pull the trigger, then you shouldn't be surprised if you blow them off. And I think that is exactly what car advice changing to drive is. Drive is yesterday's hero as a brand. Car advice has immense traction and it would amaze me if that's going to be a benefit to um, Costello's cockheads moving forward, right? the best that can happen is it'll be no change at all and the worst that can happen is right and i'm leaning towards i really am so um our media copying car expert like who cares right there's a there's a far more fundamental problem with the established mainstream motoring media than this and this is why i'm such a pariah it's because i say it okay it's bloody obvious to me because what happens is these outlets, okay, that rely on advertising revenue from car makers to survive commercially, they are supremely disinclined to criticize the product in any substantial way, okay? They're not, therefore, very helpful to you if you're in the market for a car. And this is going to kill them. Okay, it has to because there are alternatives now. There's me, for example. Okay, and this is happening elsewhere also. You look at what's happening with, uh, for example, Ben Fordham on Radio 2GB in Sydney. His ratings, right? Off a cliff, dude. And it will only continue to go that way because he's got to talk up the spinal ease pillow. Who knows or cares if he sleeps on one, but he's got to talk it up because there's money in that, right? And he's also got to march to the beat of the owners of his media monopoly kind of company, doesn't he? You know, he can't say what he really thinks. And I'm not supposing that. I'm telling you that that's how it is because I've worked on Channel 7, Channel 9, I was a host on Radio 2UE. That's how it is in those mediums, okay? You do not get to say what you really think. When you watch the news, okay, do it tonight. You're on lockdown. You'll have time. 
watch the free-to-air TV news, a commercial news, okay? Watch it on 7, watch it on 9, watch it on 10. It really doesn't matter. Have a look and have a look at the host. They're really credible, presented. They've got the good suit, right? The makeup, excellent. The backdrop, perfect, okay? They're excellent at reading the prompter. And it's bloody hard to read the prompter properly on air. I've done that. It's hard, okay? It's not as hard as driving the prompter yourself just over there in the studio, but it's hard to read the prompter and sound credible on air. It really is. And they're good at all of those things, but just watch the whole bulletin, okay? I know. Endurance event. Watch the whole bulletin and then do this experiment for me, okay? Ask yourself, do you really know anything about what the host actually thought? Do you get any vibe at all? from the host or from any of the reporters because I want the political reporter to really know what's going on in Canberra and I want I want the sport reporter to know about sport now I'm allergic to sport generally but you know if I cared about sport I'd want that and I'd even want the weather girl I'd even want the weather girl to know a bit about meteorology right she's got to look hot but only hot enough hot enough not to alienate female viewers Hot enough to titillate male viewers. That's how this works, right? You don't get the view. You don't get any sort of perspective on what kind of person the host really is, what they really think. They're not prepared to be definite, right? Unless they're singing from Rupert or Costello's political narrative or whatever, okay? And that's the problem with the mainstream media. That's why they get into friendly Geordies all the time, right? Because there's no doubt what he really thinks. There's no doubt what I really think. I really think, yeah, Volkswagens look great. They drive really well. The company's likely to throw you under a bus. Buy one at your own peril, right? And if Volkswagen's PR dude rings me up and goes, hey, we're not really happy about what you say, I go, yeah, I understand. But I'm not here for you, dude. I'm here for the audience, right? And that's the problem with the mainstream motoring media as well. They all, at, at an individual level, at a journalist level, they all want to get invited on the next gig. They want to get on the launch bandwagon. They want to maintain their pre the frequent flyer platinum status, right? They want access to the cars. And they've got to throw you under the bus to get that because they've got to be nice, okay? And they definitely don't want to be dragged into their publisher's office because a, a car maker has got their sales director or their marketing director to ring the publisher and say, get this clown in line, right? We don't like what he's saying. Now, I've had that happen to me. I've had it happen on radio and television and in print, okay? And it's not fun because if you've got mouths to feed and a mortgage to pay, it's a serious threat. It's like you're a clown, you do this again, you're out, okay? That's not fun. And that kind of thing happens. That's like phase two of the two-phase plan of getting that clown in line. Phase one is you can't come on our events, you can't drive our cars. Like I freaking care. My review of a Volkswagen is it's a great car that it's a great looking car that drives really well. Don't buy it because they're likely to throw you under the bus. Mercedes-Benz Jeep, same thing, right? You've heard me say it before. The problem at the risk of getting on my hobby horse with all of this stuff, right, is that you get thrown under the bus out there in audience land. And that kind of sucks because you've got 50 grand to spend on a new car. You want to spend it the right way. And you don't want it to be a product of some spin campaign being delivered by a journalist. Company spin campaign, 
once over lightly delivered by a journalist, platinum frequent flyer status secure, access to the test cars secure, no meeting with the publisher, which is just what everyone wants, except you. Uh, a couple more now, and uh, then we'll give it a bit of a rest. My voice is killing me. This is just like talkback radio, except you don't get four ad breaks every hour and a couple of minutes off for the news. Scott Lynch says, hi, John, looking to buy a dual cab ute. I am interested in the Ford Ranger Wild Track or the top of the range Isuzu D-Max. Which one would you buy? I'd buy the Ranger. I'd buy the Ranger because I don't think uh, Isuzu is better at customer support than Ford. I think they're about the same, both pretty useless in other words. Um, not as bad as some of the brands I've only just mentioned, but certainly not up there with the best brands in the market. Ranger's a more established product, okay? Isuzu D-Max is still a bit, let's see how it goes in service. Uh, Ranger's about to get changed out, obviously, so they've had donkey's years to get it right, particularly the 3.2. I'm not sure I'd buy the 2-litre twin turbo because uh, for the normal sort of driving at normal sort of revs that most people do, the 3.2 and the 2-litre tend to perform about the same. And the 3.2 is a much more proven engine, okay? Um so that's kind of where I'd go with that. But I'd also look at a Triton, dude, because you can operate a Triton in four-wheel drive high range on a high traction surface. And you can't do that in many of the other utes, to my knowledge, right? They're all sort of Massey Ferguson spec two high, four high, and the four high is is front and rear prop shaft synchronously locked together. So you can't turn a corner because you'll wind up the transmission, okay? And that's a huge advantage. And also Triton is available at a, significant discount to the other two and I think Isuzu is basically trying it on pretty hard with MUX and DMAX on the pricing side by the Ranger um, let's keep going now TGV says I had the same thing uh, when uh, with fleet managers being notorious being uh, morons towards me in particular Nissan just totally unprofessional well they lost our business and we never looked back yeah, look, I think Nissan's on the ropes. I think they've been on the ropes since the global financial crisis. I don't think the alliance, the three-way alliance between Renault, Nissan and Mitsubishi is a particularly happy corporate environment. Uh, I think there's a lot of internal stress there. And the the obvious outcome of the whole alliance is like there's going to be no brand differentiation beyond the badge because Renault used to be this, and Nissan used to be that, and Mitsubishi used to be that, and they're just devolving into, well, we're going to do one ute, and it's going to have three badges, and we're going to do one van, and it's going to have three badges. And then you got to say to yourself, do we really need the three brands? Because it's just hair and makeup. They're, it's, it's the same chick with three different outfits, you know? Uh, anyway, Nissan's got nearly no money, and their customer support is pretty second rate i've got some first-hand examples of that uh, you know i don't recommend them and their product range like which nissan are you really going to buy you know uh, uh, unless it's uh nissan gt's all right uh, gtr sorry is all right and uh, patrol there's a there's a case for patrol i think over land cruiser and the case is economic all the way home right but the other models like which one is attractive and the answer is none of them at least not to me personal opinion uh, Seb Triton says, hi, John, do you think the new Hyundai Santa Fe will have the same all-wheel drive problem that my 2015 Santa Fe has? Well, I'm not clairvoyant, Seb, so I don't know what problem that is. I've driven a he heap of Santa Fe's and I've never had 
an all-wheel drive system fail on me in any way. Never had a warning light, never had any of that stuff, okay? Um, I think there is some, there was some chat about a production problem where some component wasn't adequately greased and there were some all-wheel drive failures as a consequence of that and they'd be muppets if they didn't fix that. You know, that, that, that smacks to me of a deficiency in a batch of things that were produced and that manifested itself sometime down the track. So it was a, a minor deficiency that had major consequences a long way down the track in the future. And I haven't had too many instances of people taking Hyundai to the Consumer Claims Tribunal. I've had a lot of people say, yeah, well, this failed and that sucks, but they fixed it for me. So it's kind of what I was talking about earlier. Uh, but I don't think that will be the case because nearly all car makers learn from in-service problems. And even Volkswagen, for example, they had that massive DSG issue. You don't hear about Volkswagen's DSGs going poopy in their trousers anymore. Uh, Ford had the same thing with their dual-clutch transmissions. They, they're not having the same problem now. They just don't know how to pick up the pieces on those fiascos when they occur. And some of them, in particular the DSG ones, the DCT ones with um, Ford as well, they have the uh, absolute potential to ruin the reputation of that technology across brands, right? Like plenty of car makers now have dual-clutch transmissions and there are plenty of buyers out there who are shy about dual-clutch transmissions because they had a Ford power shed or they had a Volkswagen DSG that had that sort of problem, right? And that need not be the case. I would have no hesitation whatsoever buying a vehicle with that new 8-speed DCT like the new Santa Fe, for example, right? And the all-wheel drive system problem, I don't think there's like... Um, I don't think there's a huge number of them actually going poopy in their trousers out there on the road. I think it happens occasionally and it was limited to some time window of production batch and they pick up the pieces if the failure is a production problem. So that's kind of how I'd look at it. It wouldn't stop me from buying a Santa Fe or a Sorento, let's put it that way. Nick says, John, dash cams. Do you think they are becoming a modern necessity for drivers? I've read about... Uh, issues with warranties and the installation of a dash cam aftermarket. Is there any substance there? I don't see how a dash cam can interfere with your warranty. If an auto electrician or you as a skilled DIYer fit a dash cam and you blow up some system in the car because you do it badly, then that's not warrantable. But you would have a recourse against the auto electrician who did the work. Okay, the big advantage of dash cams, as I see it, is if you have a crash or if you have a run in with the cops or whatever, you can substantiate what happened. You know, like it's very difficult if there's no CCTV of an incident to actually figure out which vehicle drove through a red light, you or him. Okay, but if you've got it on dash cam and it's green, baby, and you're coming through and you get T-boned. That's a lot different to you driving through a red light and getting T-boned. And how else are you going to know, right? And that could have insurance implications because if you forgot to renew your insurance and the vehicle that you end up T-boned with is a Lamborghini, then you could lose the house, dude, when Lamborghini dude's insurance company sues you for crashing a red light, even though he was perhaps stoned off his face and drove through the red light and you were on the green. Instead of it being he said, she said, 
the uh, dash cam can be definitive or at least be compelling evidence in your favour if it comes to that. And if you've got the evidence, they probably won't even take you to court, right? Same sort of thing can happen with the cops, right? Because if the cops allege that you drove through a red light or the cops allege that you were speeding or the cops allege that you overtook on a double line or whatever, okay? If your dash cam has GPS location, so if you can geolocate yourself and you can also substantiate the time, right, which you can with GPS very accurately, then you can definitively say, I wasn't speeding. Now, I'm not a fan of helping the cops with their investigation at the side of the road. You have to comply with their lawful directives. You have to license, whatever, submit to a breath test, whatever. But don't make statements. Don't. <laughs> Why did you drive through that red light? Oh, I thought it was safe. Case closed. You're guilty. Okay. You've made the admission, right? You're allowed not to comment. Officer, with due respect, I don't intend to make any statement at this time, right? You have a common law right to silence. You don't have to be a smartass about it, okay? In fact, much better if you don't, because the cops have a lot of power and you don't have much. But you have a common law right to silence. You've got a common law right to silence if you just murdered somebody, which I hope you never do. If you've got that right to silence in that serious situation... You certainly have it at the roadside over a triviality, like an administrative breach of the road rules, okay? Too many drivers dig a hole for themselves by making admissions to the cops in ways that they think are sort of completely okay. Like, the cop is not having a chat with you. The cop is investigating for the purpose of getting you to incriminate yourself, that's how this works. So don't make statements. And instead, you got to say to yourself, well, what evidence has the cop got, right? If he says you drove through a red light and he's got three different cameras that show you driving through a red light and 10 eyewitnesses who are willing to swear on a stack of Bibles that you did it, then you're probably going to go down for it, okay? But if it's just his word versus your word, look up what uh, former Prime Minister Paul Keating managed. He went famously to court for himself after he was Prime Minister, a long time after he was Prime Minister, and the judge sort of said, well, you know, there's no reason, there's two different versions of events and there's no evidence. So the presumption of innocence uh, pertains, right? And you've got to do that and you have to be respectful and you can't say, you can't be a friggin' smart-ass, which is so hard, but... Your right to silence is a thing. Do that. If you've got the evidence that the light was green or that you were here when you overtook or the time was this or your speed was this, then that's kind of compelling. But I wouldn't even be getting into a discussion about the evidence that you've got. I'd be making no statement and seeing what happens. That's the safest thing you can do whenever you talk to the cops and it's an investigation, right? That's just how I'd roll with that. And with that uplifting little aside at the end of our Staria chat, I'd like to thank you so much for joining me here on the live stream. I just want to have a look. And oh, yes, we've had 6,000 of you have joined me on the live stream. And uh, that's fantastic. I'd, uh, I'd really like to thank you for giving up an otherwise perfectly serviceable, albeit for many of us, still on lockdown Friday afternoon, the 6th of August. I'll try and do this kind of thing more often, but I would like to thank you sincerely for uh, your time, which is valuable, even, you know, 
on lockdown. And uh, next time we have something newsworthy like the launch of the Staria, I will crank up the tech and hopefully it won't fail on me and I'll get going on time. And don't forget to download the documents if you're in the market for a Staria or a Carnival. It'll be instructive either way. A download link is in the description. So uh, let me know what you think. You can always bail me up via the website if you've got any follow-up questions. I do spend a fair bit of my time answering actual questions from actual people by email as well. But I, I really do like answering these questions uh, through the chat, even though it is